This podcast was made possible by our Leadership Circle members, Becky Morgan, Randy Pond, Lisa Sonsini, and Silver Lake. Special thanks to our 2020 Exemplary Leadership Award sponsors, Friends of Sing Kong, Friends of Webb McKinney, Eris Communications, Deloitte, and HP Inc., and to our Truth, Love, and Reconciliation Dialogue series sponsor, Destination Home. Welcome to the Dialogue. Okay, I think I'll start out. I'm Amor Santiago, and I am in ALF class 15. We say we're the best class, but I imagine every class says that. Um, happy to be here and to facilitate this conversation with two giants um, in, in our community. Well, I'm Terry Christensen, class 14, which was 2002. Um, I, I'm a retired professor, professor emeritus in political science at San Jose State University, which is where I went, met Ken. He was a student. I was a young faculty member. So we've been tracking each other for uh, quite a few years now. I'm Ken Yeager, class six. I don't know what year that was, but it was a while ago. <laughs> um, uh, first openly gay elected person to anything anywhere in, in the county in 1992, and then uh, uh, city council member in 2000 and member of the board of supervisors elected in um, 2006. And uh, Terry taught me everything I know. Awesome. One of the things that I know we have in common is San Jose State University. Um, all of us being on the faculty there. And Terry, your leadership there was extraordinary, not just around LGBTQ issues, but also um, leading the community. And Ken, your work has not just been for right LGBTQ, obviously leadership there, um, important role modeling, but also leadership in public health and so many issues that are that touch everybody in the community holistically. And, and Terry, you're also now not just retired, right? You're involved with um, a show. Do you want to mention that on Creative TV? Yeah, it's Valley Politics for Create TV. It's on Comcast Channel 30, Wednesdays and Saturday evenings. It's on Facebook and it's on uh, Valley Politics. And Ken and I have actually collaborated on two one-hour shows that focused on LGBTQ issues. One was about uh, something I'm sure we'll talk about. Well, we'll talk about both of these things as we proceed. One was about the founding of Baymac in 1984. 84, is that right, Ken? That is right. And uh, the other was about the 1980 referendum on the anti-discrimination ordinances uh, that the county and the city passed, a referendum in which those anti, anti-discrimination ordinances protecting gay, gay and, uh, and lesbian and other employment rights uh, were defeated significantly uh, by the voters, a, a, a major event, uh, and also reflective of kind of where we were in the 70s and 80s. I'm sure we'll come back to that. Yes, and, and one of the things that um, Ken and Terry, you've been very deeply engaged in, is the uh, new exhibit um, and project that's coming out of the Baymet Community Foundation, Queer Silicon Valley. And so we're looking forward to that opening um, this week. And it's an exhibit that's going to be at History uh, San Jose, uh, the park, and it'll be around for a year. And um, and that's part of what we're talking about. I guess we're part of the history um, in the making 
Uh, and uh, let's as an opening, if you would, you know, maybe starting with you, Terry or, or Ken, whoever wants to start, but we've come a long ways, right? I was mentioning Stonewall riots in 69, and we're here where we are fully ingrained in the community. We have rights such as marriage, which is totally remarkable. I never thought would happen in my lifetime. Um, so can you give kind of an overview of kind of LGBTQ um, efforts and then particularly in Silicon Valley, um, what you've seen historically? I mean, you could probably tell lots and lots of stories, but maybe just an overview perspective. Yeah, there's, you know, there's so much to, to say, but just as Terry said, you know, the, the, the two shows that, you know, he was able to coordinate. I mean, the, the fact that we have foundation here to even record our history, that I could call up Terry, who I knew, who, who was able to get a broadcast room. We could call the people that were involved. They, sh you know, and so all of a sudden now we have something permanent that otherwise would have just been lost. And, and, and I think, you know, the overarching theme of Queer Silicon Valley is capturing that for the first time for other people to learn from. And, and I should also say the, um, the whole thing about measures A and B, which I, I, I'll talk a lot about, is thank God we did that. I mean, I was always so curious, it, why did they make that decision when it was so much against the, the public opinion? I mean, th this lost 70% for an ordinance to have it um, to prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation. And so if you really want to see how far we've come, uh, take it from 1980. And, and one thing that I learned from interviewing so many people, um, and certainly you as well, Amor, is, is that there was such a ripple effect, a negative ripple effect throughout the community. Um, we were able to get copies of the flyers that the religious right sent out in 1980, that would make your blood curl. I mean, it was like, I mean, all gay people were just child molesters, uh, walking around half naked, having sex everywhere. They have no values. They have no morals. We don't even want them in our town. And you, and you get blasted with that, especially, you know, when the gay movement was really just beginning and you're trying to figure out what your role is, how, how, how do you feel as a gay person? And then you get whammied with this, and so for me, the whole history, the, the major history here is how do you dig out of where you were in 1980 to where we're, the gay community is one of the most vibrant, politically strong, uh, socially accepted groups that, that, that we have. How the heck did that happen? And so I really try to trace that with all the major milestones. So, so Terry, can you, um, just uh, as background uh, for folks who may not know, about those measures. Can you just frame it a little bit um, and expound? Well, so it's 1978 and Stonewall was 10 years before. So there'd been a gradual build up, building up of the gay movement, gay rights movement, uh, but also a huge backlash to it. Some people will have heard of or remember Anita Bryant in Florida. Uh, and then and Dade County passed a non-discrimination ordinance too that she that she led the challenge to. And she became a national figure uh, around that campaign. Um, and meanwhile, evangelical Christians, the Christian right was growing and very active. You might have heard of the moral majority. Well, one thing they thought they were more moral than we were about was LGBTQ rights. 
So this was happening um, in the late 70s. 1978, Harvey Milk was assassinated in San Francisco, first uh, elected uh, gay supervisor in, in the city of San Francisco. And that was a big moment uh, for people in this region, for, for Ken and for me and, uh, and for others, a galvanizing moment. Um, and as Ken said, I'm not sure how or why they did it, and I'm not sure we even got that out in the interviews of the decision makers who put who put those the, the anti-discrimination ordinances into law. But both the city, the city council, and the county, the county board of supervisors, uh, did that. And there was an immediate backlash to it. And in California, as you know, we have the right of referendum. So by by petition. Citizens can repeal or put, put the repeal of ordinances and laws on the ballot. And they very quickly did that uh, here, in, here in San Jose and Santa Clara County. So in, in 1980, uh, measures A and B, those were the measures that were on the ballot. And as Ken said, they were overwhelmingly rejected. The, the ordinances were overwhelmingly rejected. I think all of us were a little bit shocked Maybe not that they were rejected, but it was overwhelming. We thought this was a more progressive place. Uh, and we learned a lot in that, in that process. It, it actually, I think Ken alluded to this, ultimately strengthened the, the, the gay rights movement in the Valley because it, it, it scared a lot of people and it got a lot of people motivated. And what, what you'll see if you come to this exhibit is some of the evidence, uh, the the campaign literature, the brochures and stuff, Ken's collected uh, the news clips to give you a sense of what it was like at that time. And I think people have forgotten or people don't even know. I, I want to say one more thing, kind of big picture about this exhibit. And that is that in general, we don't know the history of where we live. Silicon Valley, San Jose, I've been doing this for my whole career. Uh, writing about the political history, uh, kind of big picture political history. But there's not just a big picture political history. There are the histories of all the constituent communities that make up this place. The LGBT community, uh, the, the, the labor movement, the environmental movement, the neighborhood movement, the ethnic and racial diversity of the Valley. All of those stories need to be told. And I'm so proud that Ken's led us into being one of the first, really, to tell in such an articulate way on, on, on the website, and be sure to check out the website if you haven't, and at the, and at the exhibition, to tell the story. And out of this is going to come some publications uh, as well. Ken's already published a fair amount on this subject. Right. And that website uh, address is Queer Silicon Valley, just like it sounds, queersiliconvalley.org. That's right. And let me take us back a step and ask yes. to explain why it's called Queer Silicon Valley. When we were growing up, queer was not an acceptable term. It, it was strictly negative. So I'm sure some people are wondering, how did that get into the current vocabulary? Yeah, good question. You know, and it's always hard for any, any startup to come up with the right name. You know, probably more time is spent on that than anything else for, for, for good reason. And, and you're right, queer for certainly as long as we knew was very pejorative. It's, 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 you know, it's what the bullies called, you know, the more feminine people on the school ground. And, um, you know, like a lot of words uh, or, or negative words against groups, you know, they, they, they do change and try to at least um, make it more positive rather than just always a negative. 
But part of it too is, is our wonderful community uh, keeps expanding with letters um, and plus signs and any number of things. And I, and I didn't want something that was going to keep changing. Um, and that's been a problem, oddly, with the Office of LGBTQ Affairs. When it was created by ordinance, that's what it was called. They can't go around and keep adding letters. Um, you know, they got to go back to the Board of Supervisors and all, you know, which everybody's happy to do. But to some point you go, you know, let's let's move on, if, if, if you will. But anyway, so it, it, it enabled me to sort of be as inclusive, because if we can call ourselves that, we've got the spectrum. And, and I didn't want someone to say, well, you forgot this or what about that? Um, you know, and then we had the rainbow, we had the rainbow colors, but on that, we've certainly ad- adapted to have um, the black and the brown represent those communities and um, the trans and bi colors as well. So uh, in that sense, we've been able to, to grow that. And then, and then it was a question of, you know, because if you were calling it LGBTQ San Jose, I'm just not sure many people are going to be searching for that. And so, but then you go, well, LGBTQ Santa Clara County, where's Silicon Valley? Where San Jose, Santa Clara County, San Mateo County, it just got too confusing. And so anyway, Silicon Valley seemed to work. You know, is it exact, you know, as far as what the story tells? You know, we sort of nibbling around certain geographic areas here. Um, but I, I wanted something that people, if they were searching, if somebody wanted to maybe know more about the gay community here, maybe they could find it by those words rather than other words. And we should mention that at the exhibition, there's a glossary of terms because this gets a little confusing and the older you are, the more confusing it gets. Uh, so there's a very helpful glossary of terms that relate to the LGBTQ, et cetera. And that's a rude way to say it, but to, to, the, to the queer community. So I want to ask about other pivotal moments. Um, obviously, anti-gay legislation, it, it seems to have energized not even, you know, our uh, our own our own folks, but, you know, the community, some of the religious community um, to support us. Um, are there other pivotal moments that you can point over the over these 40, 50 years um, that that you'd want to share or or mention? Well, you know, the other big thing that, of course, was happening really in the aftermath of A and B was um, HIV AIDS, you know, work that you've done, you know, many decades or more. Jesus, you know, you almost tear up just even thinking about it. Yeah, we just, it was notable that 40 years, right? It's been 40 years. So that's quite a, yeah. quite a milestone. Yeah, for the first case, we got our first case in 83. And uh, and, and and thanks too for both of you of, of saying, I mean, the, it's the website that has an amazing amount of information. There's 200 stories. We have a timeline, um, really for the most part, 71 to um, 2021. But, but a few events clearly before that, like Stonewall, but that really has all the information. And there's, um, we track all of the years of, of AIDS from um, but basically 83 uh, to 1997, when they finally, you know, get to get the cocktail and, and there's hope finally, and then uh, talking about getting to zero at the very end. But, but so I had done these two booklets when I was still member of the Board of Supervisors, one on HIV AIDS and one on the long struggle for equality in Santa Clara County. And I just briefly say that having done those already gave me a kickstart to do the website. It wasn't like I had to start all over from the beginning. I could adapt those into it. So I was able to sort of, again, get a lot of that history and a lot of the interviews uh, already done. 
But I would say, you know, the other thing which is interesting is gay marriage, putting putting that out, you know, and again, people forget that that voters rejected gay marriage twice uh, here, you know. And so, again, that was it wasn't like everybody was for it. Um, but one thing that I did do and I, I had I, I'd sort of forgotten it in 2004 as a member of the city council, as people gay people were getting married in other states and they were city employees, they would come back. But because they didn't weren't recognized in California, they couldn't put their partners on their city um, benefits. And so Ron Gonzalez and I then put forward a, a resolution that would grant city employees the benefits of their partners if they had been married elsewhere. And I thought it was just interesting. And because I had a tape of the city council meeting and it went on for four hours the place was packed with religious right people outnumbering the, the pro-marriage people. And then afterwards, it, there was the whole thread of a recall with Ron and with me, and it went nowhere. And looking back on it, to me, it was like that was the last stand of the moral majority, religious right, thinking that they could still sort of have, have a stronghold, that they really for 24 years um, had a lot of clout. And finally, they realized they didn't have it anymore. And I think we've been moving on much more progressive on a lot of social issues because they haven't risen up and get the busloads of people causing the problems that they did in the past. Terry, your, your thoughts on HIV and, and well, marriage? Looking back at the 80s, um, it, was, it was a horrendous decade. Uh, you start with the Nike A and B referendum and the rejection of the, uh, the non-discrimination ordinance, and then coming into the 80s and, and facing gay. And, you know, the three of us lived through that. I remember being in a bar sometime in the mid 80s and saying to somebody, we're all going to die because there was no shred of hope and nobody really understood what it, what it was. So there was that. And meanwhile, uh, there were multiple statewide ballot measures that were anti-gay. There was going to be a quarantine for people who tested positive for HIV. Uh, gay teachers were to be banned from the classroom. Uh, they all they all were defeated, fortunately, but it was a pretty horrendous time. And something that turned that in the 80s um, was what happened in, when did you write your op-ed, Ken? Was that 1984? 84, yeah. 84. Ken Yeager comes out in the, in the Mercury News, slapping back. At a, at a local assembly member who had, who had written something representing the views of the, of the, the conservative Christian right. And uh, for him to have the courage to do that in the 80s, in 1984, was pretty spectacular to me. Uh, but it, well, he didn't just come out in the newspaper. Ken and Wigsey organized BAMEC in 1984, too. So BAMEC is the Bay Area Municipal Elections Committee. It's a political action committee for, for the LGBTQ queer community. Um, and that's where gays and lesbians and others started to organize and fight back and uh, endorse candidates, give money to candidates, walk precincts for candidates. But Ken will tell you, initially, Baymax endorsement wasn't always welcome. Checks were sent back by candidates. Candidates accepted the endorsement and didn't publicize it. Ken, tell them about the first Baymac dinner. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, 1986. Um, there was uh, there was the Prop uh, 64. We had a lot of um, 
volunteers and wanted to thank them. But I wasn't sure BAMEC could carry off a dinner, you know, uh, certainly, you know, big dinners in San Francisco and Los Angeles, you know, movie stars, you know, whatever. And I was afraid we'd have a dinner and nobody would show up. And but but we sort of made it into a thank you party as well. And only one one San Jose City Council member showed up. Our good friend John Laird from Santa Cruz was there, but but no other uh, elected official in Santa Clara County went to that dinner. Iola Williams. Iola Williams. Iola Williams. We got we love we love Iola Williams. And and Terry, you you had pointed this out when because uh, I'd mentioned that at and in the in the museum exhibit, when you look at the sponsors, we have all 10 of the city council members and the mayor. We have all of our members of the state assembly, all of our members of the state Senate, all of our members of our federal delegation, um, and plus many others. And the fact that absolutely every name and board of supervisors as well, that we have all of these names going back to where we were, where we only had one person. It's not only their names; they gave money to support to support this this exhibition, significant money. And we haven't even talked about sponsorship yet of this uh, exhibit. We'll have to make sure that we do that as well. Yeah, so cost a thousand thousand dollars to uh, um, to sponsor it, and um, and everybody who's on that on that panel, all those elected officials, uh, donated a thousand dollars. So that was great. So I wanted to share something a little bit personal at the time because. Um, I was just coming out of podiatry school and starting my practice. And one of the biggest fears I had was to be identified as gay and the automatic assumption, right, that being a gay doc meant that I would be, you know, um, would have AIDS or could potentially infect them. And I had quite a bit of paranoia around that. Obviously, you know, sterile technique and all those things, right, would would never cause transmission. But just the stigma of that kind of uh, hampered me. And I practiced for another 10 years, so it wasn't really a problem. Um, if you're a good doc, hopefully that continues regardless of, you know, your orientation. But it, it, it definitely played with my mind, right, um, uh, when it came to that. And, and I think it led to my um, eventual... Um, step into public health full on, um, also getting my degree at, at San Jose State. Um, what about marriage for you, for you Terry, um, in terms of what that means? I mean, and Ken, your background's in sociology as well. So what is it, what is it that that brought us? I've been with my partner for 39 years now, just, just celebrated an anniversary. Um, and we were perfectly happy calling each other partners. Uh, but in 2008, when the voters of the when the public opinion polls said that uh, that the, the right to same-sex marriage that the courts had introduced, the California State Supreme Court had ruled for same-sex marriage, but that was about to be repealed by the voters. Um, I think uh, Ray was vacuuming and I was doing the dishes, and, and I, I said we should get married. Uh, and we did. Uh, Woodsy Sievertson married us in the backyard with our two dogs as witnesses. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from the 60s. I'm a 60s generation. Marriage wasn't that big a deal. It was something you kind of avoided, straight or gay. Um, but it turns out it does mean something. It, it, there is a feeling to it. I'm, I'm pretty proud of my, 
uh, of my wedding ring and, 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 have it, and having my husband. Um, and we did it in part, not so, we did it not so much for us, but because once enough people were married, it had to be harder for the courts to take it away. So thousands of people got married before it, that, the, that right was taken away. And that, I think, strengthened the court cases uh, that ultimately brought, brought about the ruling. Uh, I'm, I'm like you, uh, a more kind of astonished that that all happened. It's something I never even imagined or dreamed uh, could happen. Uh, but it's, it's great that it has. And now it worries me a little bit, and we can talk about this later, that some people are taking it for granted and it didn't come easily. Yeah. Uh, Ken, how many people have you married? Not gotten married to, but <laughs> officiated in a marriage. Yeah, it was um, it was really a lot of fun in 2008 when the court uh, opened up the window for for gay marriage. And um, anyway, was able to well, I'll never forget it, you know, marrying 27 people, 27 couples uh, in my office. Um, people had come down. Um, a lot of people didn't realize how you even get a marriage license. Right. You know, there it is down at the county. And um Anyway, so I had my staff members and basically said, well, you know, there's a gay county supervisor here uh, who would love to marry you. And so people people came up, we took photographs and we did the whole thing. So so that was a lot of fun. And, and again, just like everybody else, uh, pretty astonished that it had come about. Um, and just a couple of days ago in the new California poll, I think it showed that um, the support for, for gay marriage was like 70% or something um, from when it obviously was below 50%. Um, you know, several decades ago. But one of the things I always said when I married people was the reason why we got to where we are is that you were open about your relationship. And so people knew that, you know, what what gay relationships were and loved you because of it or in spite of it. And as that acceptance grew really individual by individual, that that sort of led to, I, I think, the Supreme Court feeling relatively comfortable in, in, in allowing gay marriages in ways that wouldn't have happened if there wasn't that sort of slow progress of acceptance, certainly in, in many states. That maybe, obviously, that's not elsewhere. Um, but, but the one thing I do worry about, and as you were saying, Terry, about um, taking it all for granted, I think we're all worried about what the Supreme Court might do um, particularly with that case in Philadelphia of the foster care group that didn't want to allow gay parents to be able to adopt um, or take in foster kids. And if in, and it doesn't look good. It looks like they'll sort of like um, allow that sort of religious exclusion to other kind of rights. And once that starts happening, you can, you can see problems with, you know, the, um, the county clerk in, in Louisiana, not wanting to perform marriages or, you know, any number of things that are going to affect that because of the religious connection that people have. If you believe that it's still a sin, any number of religious groups are going to say, well, I'm sorry, your matrimony, I don't recognize it. And, and, and so it, it worries me very much. Amor, what about you? What's it meant to you? Well, quite a lot. I mean, I was, um, I, th I don't know if you're from the South, but um, no, okay. Um, I know you went to school in North Carolina and that's where my husband is from. So um, we're celebrating our uh, 35th anniversary on Monday. Um, and so we jumped over a broom 
right? Um, if you know that, that uh, tradition, we jumped over a broom 35 years ago in front of friends and exchanged rings. And then there was an interim step and we, we take, you know, it was a, it was progress, right? Sometimes our progress is incremental. Um, there was domestic partnership. Yeah. Um, so that step was something we also took, you know, filing like we're some sort of a business corporation or something. Right. Um, and then came marriage and, um, and actually when domestic partnership came around, I remember at San Jose State, domestic partners had access to the gym facilities. And I had to, I had to say to, and actually it's one of our, one of our friends, I won't mention her by name, but she was running the new campus facility. And she said, no, you can't do that. You can't have domestic partner, not same sex anyway, um, you know, have the same rights as other domestic partners to access to the gym, right? Because I was a student at that time in the 90s. And Wigsy, I called Wigsy uh, Severson, also faculty member, you know, founder of Baymac. Um, I called her and she called the staff person. And guess what? <laughs> it just got changed. Like, you know, Harry could access the gym like anybody else. But it was it was really just a, a small thing that said, wait a second, we should not be treated differently. And I think that's the kind of thing that marriage allows us to have. These incremental steps allow us to speak and then hold to kind of principles, right? Was it really a policy at San Jose State or not, right? And, and here's a here's a person who's who is one of our community having to implement something right that goes counter to everything else that that we're talking about. So it's meant a lot. It's meant a lot to. Um, and, and I think in terms of modeling, role modeling about commitment and love and my tradition is evangelical Christian myself. I'm more of a universalist now, but but still follow around um you know, belief systems, right, of faith and love and hope and charity. But, um, yeah, I think it's about um, saying to others, right, even those steeped in faith, that it's possible. I think it's really important to recognize those small steps, like what you just described, uh, because they built up to the big step and they gave, gave people more confidence and prepared them uh, for, for the big step. And Wigsy Sievertson, we should mention, is one of the heroines. We have mentioned her already a couple of times, but one of the true heroines or heroes of, uh, of the movement, not just in, in, the, in the Silicon Valley, but, uh, but beyond. And certainly at San Jose State, where she was my colleague. And if I could just uh, interject, there is an amazingly good interview with Wigsy on the website. Um, I did a sort of a night with Wigsy uh, maybe about a year and a half ago, give or take and recorded it. And so I was able to sort of just do a in dialogue with her for about an hour and then have some of her friends say a couple comments as well. So if uh, if you don't know Wigsy or maybe you've heard of her, but don't know much else, yeah. you'll love the interview. It, it, it talks about her entire life, you know, the ups, and the downs, and um, and she's just a wonderful person. And it's it's a great interview. We've we've come a long ways. Obviously, we've lived it. We've lived the history. Um, long enough that some people may never, uh, you know, aren't, aren't encountering the history. Um, so what do you think about the years ahead? What's ahead for us um, and our, our, our queer uh, community, if you will, in Silicon Valley? 
Um, what, what do you see our challenges? What do you see our opportunities? Where, what else do we need to be engaged in? Well, I think here in Silicon Valley, it's really easy to be complacent, to say we've done well, here we are, we're established, we're, we have employment opportunities and other opportunities. That's not true of everybody in the LGBTQ community. It's not true at all. Uh, and many of these rights that we think are secure uh, are fragile. Uh, there could be court cases. Ken's mentioned some, some possibilities. There will be court cases. Uh, there could be other ballot measures. Uh, there could be, uh, could be uh, backlash. I, I don't think we can be complacent. And it really worries me, especially that younger people might be complacent because they've grown up with these, with what seem to be rights. Uh, and hopefully, if those rights are threatened, they'll rise to the rise to the challenge and, and defend the rights. Yeah, I was uh, I was glad that when I was uh, on the board, I had, uh, if you will, commissioned um, a health survey of the LGBTQ community, so we would have a better idea of what was sort of going on. Knowing that if you didn't, if you only you had anecdotal evidence, it was going to be hard to get other people to put money into programs that you knew were needed. And, um, and not surprising, they found a lot of health disparities uh, with, with LGBTQ people in general, but particularly youth. And boy, could I talk a lot about, about this. You know, in the, <laughs> it was it, 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 it probably still is happening, although I tried very hard to make sure that it would stop happening. A lot of, of people don't even tell their doctor that they're LGBTQ for fear that they're going to get rejected or they won't be, you know, they'll say, well, get out of the office. So how do you have good health care if they don't know that central aspect of you? But anyway, we certainly found out that a high proportion of young people, uh, certainly in the foster care service, a lot of our are homeless, um, a lot have mental health issues. You can just feel health that you go, you could go down the line. And so that then led to trying to figure out what the answer is. But I guess I mentioned it more because, and Terry certainly said this as well. I mean, these are a lot of issues that we've got to work on, a lot of mental health issues that a lot of people just don't really quite realize, or, or homeless issues, you know, and we're doing a little better. Uh, we have now a, a couple um, shelters for, for LGBTQ people, mainly focused. Uh, we have the Office of LGBTQ Affairs. For the first time now, we have the trans health center, services that didn't used to exist at all for, 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 for trans. And I think we know that um, there's still a lot of violence uh, um, towards trans people. Um, and so that's going to continue to be an issue. So I think it's more of those social issues, helping each other, people that we may not often interact with, but, but we've got to be able to figure out how to do that. And so we can bring everybody else along. So... One of the things that I know we're all keen on, certainly with George Floyd and um, social justice, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and and really some real focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And some people have added the B for belonging, right? This there's a there's a trajectory that includes us, needs to include us, needs to include our experiences and our voices. Um, how do how do you see that fitting in as something that's going cross sector, if you will? Um, there's a there's conversations, but how do you make that real? And what's our role uh, as part of the queer community? 
I, I should say one, one thing that sort of disrupted so much was COVID. I, um, you know, I think a lot of things just, I don't want to say put on hold because people having issues, well, always, you know, were happening, but all of a sudden you sort of lost that connection. Um, and there was the Zoom, if, if you were plugged into that. And, and so it would be very interesting. And we're doing this on June 15th, um, just when, you know, everything is supposed to open. And hopefully that means that there can be meetings again. Um, but I, I think it's going to be up to, you know, the leaders in our community, which include ourselves, um, is, you know, making sure that those conversations happen um, as we sort of find our way. You know, I also know that only because I, I did this history of, of all of these gay organizations that I could find, how many just stopped meeting? So do they come back? This is Silicon Valley. Things move on. Um, there, there, there isn't the infrastructure that there used to be. I should also say there's only three bars here. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But, but you don't, again, have interaction of people talking about various issues. Um, and, and, I think that's, and I think that's what we need to do. That's right. The organizational infrastructure of the Valley has, has declined through this time. And COVID has put us all more and more in our silos, in our, in our, in our sections, not intersecting, but in our, in our sections. So we're talking to, talking to each other and less uh, to others uh, who probably have shared interests. If Widzy were here, I know she would be adamant about uh, coalitions and allies. Uh, Woodsy worked with labor. Woodsy worked with the NAACP. Woodsy worked with lots of, with cross-sectional groups. She's now on the Senior Citizen Commission. Uh, that's a really important issue. Some of us are seniors. We're gay seniors. Uh, yeah. Uh, so we need to, we, we need to be uh, thinking intersectionally. And actually, maybe that brings us back to ALF because that's the ideal intersectional organization that brings us together uh, with others and, and, and helps us get acquainted with the issues that other people have and, that, and, and helps them get acquainted with uh, issues that, that we may have. So I hope as we come out of COVID, we'll start to associate more and associate across and between uh, sectors. It seems ALF has a particular strength over the many years and many cohorts and classes. Um, we, we must be over, over a thousand, if, if not more, in terms of uh, fellows who are in tech and in health and in social services and in government. It's, it's actually a powerful network. And I, maybe, maybe it's up to us to leverage that. And I think the perfect opportunity, as we discussed earlier, and maybe before um, the podcast started, the exhibit of Queer Silicon Valley could be, uh, you know, uh, a starting point, a, a focal point um, to those discussions. And, and again, going back to this even broader effort around diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, that, that's, that, that I think COVID has actually highlighted, right? And that includes our uh, less included le um, brothers and sisters and, and trans folks and queer folks. So, okay. I, I wanna leave with, um, I think we're about at the end of our time, but I want to ask you one more thing, maybe two more things. Um, we've talked a little bit about, about challenges and opportunities. 
um, what is the one thing you'd like to focus um, on during these next, uh, maybe let's just say this next year, obviously the exhibit and those sorts of things. And then uh, something about ALF. Um, what was meaningful to you in your ALF experience? I, I, I can't wait to get people's reactions, but I, I'm also really hoping that people are going to tell me stories and give me photographs and show me things that, that I just wasn't aware of. And I think that's going to excite them that somebody actually cares about their, about their history. And I care, you know, because I want to tell this story as well as I possibly can. So we'll see where it all goes. Um, the, the website it has the ability to uh, contain as much information as it is, is out there. Um, and I'm doing that for the older people who created that history, but also for the younger people who don't even know that history exists. Um, so that's what I'm going to be doing. You know, I, I think probably it's the friends that I've made um, with with ALF, probably more than anything else. Um, our class meets um, not frequently, but every once in a while. But these are people that I still see separate from ALF and um, have always been very supportive of me and I of them. And, uh, and it's been nice to sort of have that connection. Terry? So my focus will continue to be telling the story of the Valley uh, with my TV show and, uh, and, and by writing about it and by supporting projects like, uh, like this one that tell one segment of the big, big story uh, that contribute greatly to the richness of, of that story. Uh, and I guess my other focus is going to be engagement. I'm worried about people staying engaged, politically active, getting out there, voting, uh, getting other people to vote, getting registered to vote, getting young people especially to vote. Uh, so I'm going to be thinking about 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 that a lot and trying to encourage people to to be engaged, uh, voting and beyond. Uh, for me, uh, ALF, it came at a weird time in my career. I had just finished being the department chair, and that was kind of my peak administrative post. I had no intention of going any further ever. I didn't want to be a dean or any other kind of university administrator. So when they recruited me uh, to be an ALF, I thought, well, what's the point? Uh, I'm, I'm not going to be a leader anymore. I was thinking too narrowly about leadership, though. Uh, because you don't just lead by the position you hold. Uh, you lead by the way you participate in the life of your, of your community. So I think ALF helped kind of shift me over to that the servant leader concept, that kind of stuff. And then, as Ken said, the, the network uh, is amazing. Um, I'm on the network. I've been on the network development committee now for almost 20 years because uh, I'm excited about building that network and also being sure that that network is representative of the cross-section uh, of our community, including the LGBTQ community. So uh, ALF, yeah, it, 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 the, uh, the network, uh, the changing perception of leadership, and I guess also the opportunity to back away and think about, think about what I was doing, for all of us to think about what we're doing. You don't get that many opportunities to do that in our busy professional careers these days. These days, and ALF does give you that opportunity. So what about you, Amor? So obviously, I'm still engaged in nonprofit uh, leadership currently at Project Open Hand. Um, we are still serving HIV uh, now an aging HIV clientele with you know some of the consequences of long-term infection. 
but um, we're feeding them. We're giving them the nutrition that they need. And, and then we've expanded beyond that population. We responded in the first pandemic. We responded in the second pandemic. So um, just trying to do more, do better, make a difference in the health of folks who are, are chronically ill. Um, and ALF has, I, I haven't been as involved in the broader network of ALF, but my class means a lot to me. Um, they have been supportive in all of our uh, just reunions to catch up and, and to just say, you know, your value, you know, at a just person to person, you could be the CEO of the big mega billion. You know, we have a couple of those in our class, right? And, and I'm just the humble nonprofit leader. And um, we're all the same when we're all together. And it's, it's just wonderful. I mean, this is how it ought to be. Um, so anyway, it's been, been great. So I want to thank, um, Akemi Flynn, who, and I don't know if that's going to go onto the broadcast, but for facilitating us coming together, it's been a privilege for me. Um, Ken, um, my hero, Terry, my colleague and hero, um, we're all colleagues in, in the work. Um, thank you so much. ALF joins and strengthens diverse leaders, creating and supporting networks for good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and encourage you to subscribe to The Dialogue on iTunes or SoundCloud. To learn more about ALF, visit us online at alfsv.org.